Fellas, we got news, we got clips, what you really wanna know? Uh, entertaining guests, ain't no telling who you might see Entertaining guests, like it ain't telling who he might be You can say anything in your rap, if you really heat Like bada boom and bada bada bow and bada bada bean If you join the show, then you might own a little couple things Like how I'm trying to make this bar rhyme with positivity Like how I'm trying to say I'm unselfish with magnanimity This show might just change somebody's life with the possibility And now, podcasting with pride from a down river suburb of the Lady City Wednesday night. Welcome back to Bright Side of the Hump. We're here to get you on that glide to the weekend. It's January 25th, and that means we are only 34 days from the unofficial end of winter. True, here in northern latitudes, we can experience plenty of cold and snow well through April. However, when you can say it's March, psychologically, you are putting old man winter on notice. So deal with it, geezer. Tonight's guest joined me from his home in England, a.k.a. the United Kingdom, a.k.a. the U.K. John Gibbs has had a long career as an educator and is currently hosting a philosophy podcast called The Spinoza Triad, Philosophy in Our World, available on all your podcasting platforms. First, though, We all want to help other people. Crisis Text Line does that by meeting people where they are. Many of us are far more comfortable with texting, especially in uncomfortable situations. So Crisis Text Line provides support to people who are in mental health crisis through access to counselors via text. Simply typing HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741, It's a person in crisis connected to a counselor who can share mental health resources with them. It's a wonderful, practical, life-saving service. But Crisis Text Line needs our help, everybody. They need volunteers. They need money. And they need help getting the word out about their services. All the information you need to help is right on their website, crisistextline.org, and you can go to the webpage for this podcast, click on the donate link, which takes you directly to the Crisis Text Line site where you can get all the details on how you can help. Let's help them out, please. We have a treat tonight, Brightsiders. This gentleman is joining us from England. He has a very popular philosophy podcast called The Spinoza Triad, which connects the philosophy of Plato, Locke, Marx, and all the greats in between to our modern world with the hopes it will show how philosophy can help us understand the world we live in. He has a master's degree in the history and institutions of the United States, which is taken into classrooms and lecture halls over here, as well as back in his his native UK. He's a writer who also does stand-up comedy and speaking engagements, which you're going to see are a natural fit for his extraordinary breadth of knowledge and engaging, articulate style. 
Without further ado, if your ears wish it, tis not a dream. Welcome, John Gibbs, to Bright Side of the Hump. Welcome, John. Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction. I feel uh, I feel I must try and live up to it now, which uh, I'll, I'll endeavor to do. Thank you, sir. Uh, can Can you tell me what made you decide to study America? Well, that's an interesting question, really. When I thought, when I think about that, I think it happened. It happens that people outside of the United States, and I'll here in England and generally in the world, are fascinated by America because it it is the the one of the most compelling places in the world to think about. So I think I was probably thinking about the United States as I watched Casey Jones on a Saturday morning on television or or the Dick Van Dyke show in the 1960s. It sort of filtered through as a place slightly beyond Britain, but bigger and bolder and more, somehow, somehow more expressive than Britain. So as like a lot of kids, I played cowboys and Indians in the streets. And I, when I chewed chewing gum, it was Bazooka Joe. And there was a little comic inside. And they said, people think, said things like, gee whiz. And I'd heard of it and thought of it. <laughs> and so that was the, that was the groundwork to, to being interested in, the, in America. What made me study it? Well, I, I guess accident. Why do, make, why do people make choices about things of that kind? Uh, but, but also because if you're interested in the world and you live in the 20th century, then certainly since the end of the Second World War, you're living in the American century, <laughs> right. whether you like it or not. And and we still are. And if America, if, if Britain conquered the world with, and the Europeans conquered the world with imperial armies and gunboats, America certainly conquered the world with, you know, what's that, um, uh, Wallace Stevens quote, the, the emperor, empire of ice cream. You know, America conquered the world more emphatically without guns than Britain ever did with them. So... With consumerism. Absolutely, yes. Consumerism and yeah, and blue jeans and rock and roll and and a vision of something that was you know, the the, the, the probably the most successful marketing vision in the world, which was the great Wild West. <laughs> Amazing, right? Yes, absolutely. And even and even when you take the Wild West, you sort of trans transmogrify into the American city, down these lonely streets a man must go. Whether you're the detective, whether you're Sam Spade, or whether you're John Wayne, it is compelling stuff. So why not study America? Very much so. Boy, you're making my uh, my <laughs> chest swell as we speak. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think I, I can recall uh, an incident. I think I was... Um, in a taxi in New York, and I had to sit next to the taxi driver because my wife and children were sitting just behind us. Uh, and the taxi driver, st- strong accent of some kind, you know, I, 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 I hesitate to do it, but I'll do a sort of foreign accent. And I said, to, he said to me, you know, are you in, you know, are you visiting New York? Are you enjoying New York? And I said, that was, that was something like an accent anyway. And he said, and I said, well, yeah, no, it's a, it's a wonderful city. And I realized that I was in danger of going off the road with the guy's enthusiasm. Best city in the world, best country on the world, you know, best place on earth. I come here with nothing, nothing. And I have three taxis. My daughter, she a lawyer. My husband, my son, he doctor. And I thought, well, yeah, you are expressing the American dream. That Whether, whether that's, that's not going to be true for everyone, but it is true for you. And it's real. It's not unreal yeah. experience. No. 
No, it's not. It's not based entirely in myth. <laughs> not based entirely in myth. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> you spent most of your life trying to help others, especially British people, understand America's history and institutions. How did you transition into a podcast about philosophy? Well, in a way, uh, again, by accident, uh, falling into conversation with people who were interested in philosophy, colleagues who were interested in philosophy, and just being that sort of person, I guess I am, because I'm I'm that sort of person, who's sort of interested in serious things, you know, in that that line of a poem by Philip Larkin, that people will, will be forever surprising in themselves a hunger to be more serious. And I, I think that's true. I've always had a slight hunger to be more serious. And you can't get more serious than philosophy in a way. It's dealing with, you know, what, what can we say and know? What are we exactly? Uh, metaphysics. Uh, what is life like? Ontology. What, um, what, what is the good life? Ethics. And those lots of any other kind of study, it doesn't matter which kind of study you're talking about, literature or, or history or politics, they resolve in those questions. So they are the starting questions. And uh, I like to I like to find people <laughs> who like to talk about this stuff. Um, we can we can we can we can uh, explore those together. So that's what started the podcast, a discussion group that we then thought one day, why don't we record this? There must be, there must be other people who might want to listen. Yeah, it, very compelling stuff. Weighty for sure, right? There's a tremendous weight to it. Uh, I one time in The Sopranos is one of my favorite shows ever and it, it that may seem crass <laughs> but it i think it's a fine piece of art from beginning to end and one of the one of the episodes deals with uh the the lead character asking the question who am i where am i going and that is the question for all of us it is so <laughs> all right lightening things a little bit yeah what do you think are some assumptions that Brits make about us Americans? Well, I feel when you ask me that, it's almost like you're inviting me to say something. Well, Americans all are sort of loud and fat and, <laughs> and full of themselves and so on. Uh, that, you know, that's not really true anymore of, of British perceptions of Americans at all. And no more is it true than, than once the perception of British people as sort of pigeon-chested, pasty-faced people with shocking teeth. That probably wasn't... That was probably that was the experience of soldiers in the Second World War who came to this country and realised they were about a foot taller and altogether in better condition than most Brits. But I, and so that, 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 not that. But I guess what is the perception of British people about America? Well, if you're listening to the news in Britain and it gets towards the end bit, and there's a convention that now you know the, the end the for, for reasons that are baffling, they'll end the news with something that, that purports to be amusing. So they'll say something like, and now, having <laughs> just dealt with the most terrible things that what, for some reason we need some sort of sugar at the end. They'll say, and now. And if they start the next bit with, in the United States or in Oma, in Delaware or somewhere, in, in New York, you know something daft is coming. Something <laughs> tremendously daft. There'll be some chap who's tried to eat his own car or something. Or there'll be a man who's not spoken of you, or some 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 religious sect that f pushes their heads into buckets of scorpions, and you'll just go, ah, oh, that is absolutely, really only in America are they going to do stuff like that. It's wonderful. I feel I feel so much better about my ordinary life now, knowing that's going on over the horizon somewhere. <laughs> hey, ma. <laughs> I mean, yesterday I was watching the news, and there's a, was it a guy called George Santos. He's in the, he's in the, yes, the chap in the House of Representatives who 
even the most cursory observation of him on, you know, on his on a live, a live being filmed or talking, you realise he's the most appalling charlatan, most dreadful con man that could possibly exist. Now, apparently, he's been put on several committees. <laughs> so he's like, you know, you got to, you got to, you got to, you really? No, that's surely not true. Yes, it's true. And it's happening in America. So that's, that's, uh, <laughs> so a place where things are a little weirder than most places. That's how British people view America. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. You know, uh, we did, uh, the founding fathers, popular myth about the founding fathers is that they were totally against the monarchy. And it's interesting, you know, a lot of people don't realize that in that period of time, they were hoping they could address their grievances to King George and then have an opportunity for King George and Parliament mm. to reflect and Parliament to come back and say, OK, we can agree to some of these things. And, you know, like the, so there was an element of the founding fathers that didn't even want to want to completely be without the money. We could be part yeah. of the Commonwealth now very easily. But they knew that to the degree that that's why they set up our Congress the way that they did, because they knew that House of Representatives potentially posed a big problem when you get someone like this guy in there. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, he's not entirely unrepresentative unrep <laughs> of characters you might find there. Right. Of course, um, you know, not to say that we haven't got our uh, deeply florid characters like Boris Johnson and so on in this country, but there is, there is at least about Boris Johnson, there's the, there's the illusion that he's clever. For a, for a few moments, you might be taken in. You might think, well, you know, he seems he did go to a top university. He did. And speaks with a posh accent. So that must mean he's got <laughs> something going on behind his eyes. But in fact, no, you know, he is every bit as stupid as could possibly be imagined. But at least he can get away with it for a bit. Whereas George Santos, well, that's impossible. How can you possibly be taken in? Right. That's exactly right. A lot of people voted for that guy. That's what you got to remember. Yes. 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 Well, I mean, we, I haven't got, got, I haven't started on, it's too easy in a way, isn't it, Donald Trump, that it, that would be. So So Donald Trump, when the, the world might have well been surprised by Donald Trump, but in this country, again, it was a sort of sense of, oh, well, yes, that's, that's the Americans for you. <laughs> they're, they're clearly, yeah. that's the natural trajectory of politics across the pond is towards the absurd. There you go. <laughs> but it's interesting what you say about the founding fathers. Yeah, absolutely. You really had the Brits really had to work at alienating the Americans. Yes, <laughs> you know, it was there was every possibility to keep them on side and not have the war of independence. But but we we managed it. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> For better or worse. How did you develop an interest in comedy? And how often and in what context do you perform your comedy? Well, I, I'll, I'll not declare myself to be a stand-up comedian. I, I'm, a, I'm an educator, but when I, over the years in my career as, ed, as, as educator, as lecturer and teacher in colleges and so on, I've certainly faced on a regular basis an audience. That audience is the students, and they are they can be a pretty difficult bunch since they may not have chosen to do your course and each year you have to win them over. And I found that a profound sense of that, having a sense of humour was quite a good, quite a good tool. And, yeah, and years and years before that, the, the, the general audience of life, I found that as a, as a person at a school, when I was a kid, that uh, you could not be, you know, pay, you, physical pain 
inflicted by larger boys could be avoided <laughs> with a sense of humor and uh, so that that's probably where it started and then, so then as i go through my career i get this sort of reputation of being someone who can conjure up a few words on occasion and that develops into me being called upon to do things like at ceremonial occasions you know, might be a sort of a you know after dinner speaking or something or at the end of term saying goodbye to someone or then it becomes a little more formal so i'm giving you know a big audience the entire institution is gathered in, a, in an auditorium for the you know what's become the mr gibbs experience at christmas or something of that kind where he where he's where i cast cast a few words and hopefully are funny uh and then a few occasions when i've actually walked out in front of an audience that had paid to see me and that was terrifying so i can't d- declare that i have ever been a stand-up comedian but somehow trying to be funny has always been there somewhere Having said that, now I'll now deliver the next 20 minutes of the dullest stuff that anyone has ever heard. Because <laughs> that's, that's the lethal, isn't it? Absolutely lethal is to say you're funny. <laughs> For sure. The expectation level goes high. PhD departments throughout the world probably cringe at this, but there's a belief that stand-up comedians are modern philosophers. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Completely. No, they stop cringing, PhD departments, because through, through there's a long, long synergy of history through cultural history, right back to the ancient Greeks and on of comedy and serious thinking lying side by side and, and overlapping with philosophy. When the, when the, the Greeks went out and watched a, a tragedy and they, they, it wasn't like relief. Oh, for, thank God, after that tirade of of horror and, and depressing um, fate working itself out badly against humanity. When they watched the comedy afterwards, it wasn't the light relief. It was another form of confronting the human condition. And in many ways, comedians can confront the human condition more profoundly uh, in all sorts of drama and the stand-up comedian, no less. When, a, when someone stands up in front of an audience and they try to make them laugh or do make them laugh, often it's... Uh, by some sort of connection with some profound things like basically what is all humor about ultimately it's about um, aging sex and death and the aging sex and death is the originator of all humor really and even even comedy of manners and being embarrassed around the dinner table at at a christmas or something comedy scene in the end it's about the, the the utter loneliness of human beings and their inability to communicate through this brief passage of existence between life and death and it's all very very serious which is why we laugh so much which is why you laugh at funerals which is why people you know what I've, I, re, I remember reading accounts of um high women in the high women's got caught and he's going to be executed in the 18th century and they would get them on the and they would they'd be a great show the crowds would gather around the scaffold. The high woman would come out, and he'd have the he'd have the best audience of his life. Everything he said was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a bit like um, if you give uh, a speech, which I've done on one occasion. I had the honour to be a, a best man at a wedding, my friend of my an old friend's wedding. And as you stand, and I stood up at the wedding to give the best man's speech. Very strange kind of ritual in a way, you know, the light relief. I thought to myself, I'll never have a more giving audience. I could say that dimmest stuff anything i could say make the most <laughs> commonplace remark and it'll get a laugh with these people they are so aching to laugh it's going to be it's like i live this, this is so this is so easy and it's partly because if you make them laugh there and then at the wedding what are they actually experiencing at the wedding they're experiencing a transition between two parts of someone's life 
nothing could be more serious. As you speak to them, they know that the cold winds of time are pushing the groom's hair off his head, <laughs> and the and the and the, and the and the bride will never look so beautiful. And she knows it. You all know it in a way. And the and the and the. The parents in the front row, they see themselves, they will, they will soon be pushed aside by the arrival of a new generation. It's the grave for them next. These people are going to really laugh. <laughs> so, yeah, comedians, they are the philosophers. Absolutely. You nailed it there. That was outstanding. I really believe the parents of the bride or groom, one looks at the other and says, do you remember when we were that happy? And the other says, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were never that happy. <laughs> and they probably aren't either is the next thought. <laughs> There seems to be an effort to narrow the scope of what's acceptable to joke about. What Do you observe that trend, and is it understandable? Is it even desirable in some ways, or is it uh, the sign of we're just getting too soft? Well, you know, I, I, don't, I know where that, that observation is coming from because of the kind of um, cancel culture and the political correctness idea that there are lots of things that once would have been just good old fun, you know, uh, and nowadays you can't say that and you can't use that word and you can't say that. Actually, I think completely the reverse is true, though. I think actually humour has broadened. And the reason I'll say that, even though there are definitely things that, that you shouldn't say these days that would have been said in the 1970s. You know, I mean, in this country, in the 1970s, one of my fa my parents' favourite programmes, one they saw no harm in at all, was a thing called the Black and White Minstrel Show. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it's, it's, it's wrong in every possible way, parents. <laughs> I could go back in time and tell them. It's right. There's so many ways it's wrong. Right. They sat there an evening, my mum watching the telly, and my dad, the Black and White Minstrel Show. Or there was another comedy show called something like um, My Neighbour's a Black Man, that's strange, isn't it? I mean, that's that completely paraphrasing the title, but essentially the, the premise of the show was that you had a neighbour who wasn't white. Oh, Lord. That was hilariously funny. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not to be shown now or Benny Hill or something of that kind. However, if you went back to, say, I don't know, the old music hall of the 1940s or 50s, 40s, no, 30s and 40s, and you saw a comedian like Max Miller. Now, Max Miller was known at the time for being on the cutting edge of rudeness. So he wore a very florid costume and he'd walk out on stage and he would, through a series of never quite said innuendo, refer to things. So, so you know, well, here we are, madam. I know what you're thinking. On the way home today, I bought a fine pair. You like a fine pair, don't you, madam? You like a big one. And, and, and the audience are laughing and laughing because he's obviously referring to something yeah. sexual. They can't quite get it. Big ones and a nice pair. He's bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> if you put Max Miller in front of an audience today, they're not going to laugh at all. Someone's just going to say, what, is that a penis you're talking about? I mean, well, it's clearly... It's just absurd for, to dance around it like that. We've gone, we've gone beyond that in a sense. But if you took another comedian today, like I don't know, a surrealist kind of comedian like Ross Noble, I don't know if you've ever heard of Ross Noble. I think, I think he's quite big in anyway. Or the or Monty Python. When Monty Python first appears on British television, my father sat there saying, "Do you find that?" He looked at me across the room and he said, "Do you find this funny, John? Do you, do you enjoy this sort of thing? <laughs> what's that? What's, what's even funny that that thing there for?" And what they were doing in that surreal kind of humour was expanding humour into areas of ordinary life and its absurdities that, that went beyond the musical and were able to say things you couldn't say before. So, yeah, I think there are... And I don't mind the fact that we don't 
you know, that we've we've learned <laughs> that the nineteen seventies, when child when when child abuse <laughs> and uh, and um, and violence in the school was commonplace. I'm glad we've left that behind. Really, you know, I think that I think comedy is broader today and more recognizing of of the kind of society we live in. Probably all grown up in a way. There are better comedic riverbeds to pan for gold in. That's that's a delightful way of putting it. Yes, there are. I think so, and I think the the, the to use that to keep that metaphor going, the the comedy river today is much broader. Absolutely, yeah. How do you feel the sensitivity to what is and isn't offensive is different between the U.S. and the U.K.? Well, yeah, again, there was a time when it was thought that British comedy didn't cross the Atlantic. And this was sort of back in the 50s and 60s when things like The Goon Show and such like and Morecambe and Wise somehow couldn't cross the Atlantic. They tried and they piloted them on American telly. It didn't work. And then all of a sudden, American British comedy like crosses the Atlantic big in terms of Benny Hill. And uh, and even Benny Hill, even, even the banality of Benny Hill, by the way, is all about death. And it's all old men being pursued by busty ladies is all about again about about the the essential absurdity of of, of human existence <laughs> but the, the so yeah so we, we we now we now laugh at very similar things but i'll give you an example a very successful comedy on british television was a thing called the office with richie gervais Rick, ricky ricky gervais not richie gervais ricky gervais and it crossed the atlantic and was turned into an american version with steve carroll and uh, both are excellent both are very, very good. Uh, and some people say, well, the American one's a whole lot better. And some people say, well, I like the British one. But the difference between them was the British one was kind of a bit nastier, really, <laughs> a bit crueler. And the American one was softer, but more absurd and, and, and more professionally written in many ways. So they were, they were, they were different. Um, it used to be said that violence, Americans were more tolerant of violence in their in their in their comedy and in their drama and the british were more tolerant of sex and innuendo in their drama but again i, again, I think that's less true than it was especially with sort of the broad range of channels that you can find i don't think there's much of a there's much prudish the prudishness has disappeared largely in america and the violence has become fully fully articulated in this country i would i would think so so there's there's less of a difference, but I would overall, my wife who's American would say to me sometimes, you know, I just I think some some humour of some British humour is so is too unpleasant, it's sort of too cruel, compared to American humour. That may be true. That's great. I uh, my first <clears throat> love of British comedians came with Eddie Izzard, and I felt kind of like Eddie paved the way in a way for Ricky Gervais to make that leap. Ricky Gervais to me is, uh, I really love him for the heart of the stories that he tells, even in the British office. I agree with you that it's very sharp, acerbic, but the heart at the middle of it, when you go to the Christmas episode and you see, uh, Dawn come running back. Oh my God. It's brilliant at, at way beyond a comedic level. It is. That is true. Yes, that is true. Uh, I, I guess it's it's the, the character of that he plays, uh, Ricky Gervais' character in The Office, <laughs> is, is just so cringingly, awfully, or beautifully portrayed. 
you feel yes. that he is every man and you feel you feel that you, you it's agonizing to watch it's nails yes. down the blackboard to watch it is deeply painful. In a way that Steve Carroll's character isn't. He's much more straightforwardly funny. Yep. What do you feel like is the cultural pulse of America that you view now? Again, I, I'm asking these questions because I think you have a unique perspective, which you've definitely demonstrated here. Uh, what do you think the cultural pulse of America is from your perception? And what do you think it bodes for down the road? Well, again, that's, that's, that's a fascinating question, really, because from the outsider's sort of point of view, obviously the, the things that seem to stand out as most worryingly apparent in the cultural pulse of America is the division between two, two distinct kind of cultural Americas, the America, the red America, the blue America, the America that storms up the steps of... Um, of Congress, the America that doesn't really speak the same language almost as the other America. And you might say, well, that, that, that's sort of worrying because Americans of the past seem to share a profound belief in something, right? That profound belief in something was something that might have been portrayed by John Wayne in the Wild West. Whether it was true or not, it was certainly it's a fantasy that was shared, you know, the American dream. That doesn't seem to be quite strong enough to glue Americans to, together, in the in the way that it that it did once. However, I think I, I would say that look at the big sweep of American history, the last two hundred years or so from the beginning. America fought a civil war. America America has struggled with the profound mistake of allowing slavery to continue in its early years and and the aftermath of that. It is a country which is sort of agonizingly at war with itself. The natural state of America is to be in a state of, of constant agonizing self-reflection. So I'm not so sure that the current times are often presented as America is in crisis, America's democracy is challenged. Certainly, I mean, a, a crowd storming Congress would seem to suggest that, Congress, that democracy itself is at stake. But I think America's democracy has always been contested and American society is always in a state of perpetual revolution. It is a revolutionary society. Not, you know, it didn't join the Commonwealth, as we said earlier, and didn't didn't become the sort of safe Canadians. And instead, they became this experimental society. And its experiment has gone down some very dark roads and has to remake itself from time to time. So I think the natural condition of America is to be in some kind of um, uh, crisis. The crisis is the new normal for America. Not the new normal. Crisis is the normal for American culture. It, it is. It is in a state of, of re rebuilding almost perpetually. Just like American cities are. You go to American cities. You go back a few years later. It's all been rebuilt. Some 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 beautiful old landmark has been knocked down. You know, America is always rebuilding and reconstructing and reflecting. Nothing sits and stays. Uh, in that sense, it's always falling down and always being rebuilt. I'm not sure that that really quite answered your question there, but it did. And it not only did you answer my question, but you gave me a little bit of optimism. And I, I always appreciate that. I can that's a cup I can drink from any time. I got to tell you, one of my favorite comedians is Doug Stanhope, and he actually has a big following in the UK. Also, mm -hmm. he has a, a great bit that he uses and he you know says that traditions are dead people's baggage. <laughs> and I think there's a current of that in America. And sometimes that can be a good thing. Sometimes it can be a negative, obviously. But 
on balance, traditions for tradition's sake uh, tend to get people in trouble. Oh, well, goodness. Tell, tell me about it. You know, this, this country, which is uh, saturated with class and class privilege and a royal family, for better or worse, and mostly for worse, I fear, and, uh, and all sorts of things that really uh, would be good to have been be, be rid of. You know, but it's a bit of bit of rough old skin that could be sloughed off. There's lots of that in the in the in the UK. Now, America, America is you're right. It, it is to to imagine to hang on to things past their sell by date. And I'm not, you know, I, I keep those things that work. But also to imagine that there was a a kind of 1950s Disney America that everyone was harmonious. In the 1950s, it was. Really, we've already got an appalling place in the United States. There's lots of things you wouldn't want to experience there. Yes. And you couldn't go back any point in the past and say, well, I've arrived at a time when we were all together. And if America now is confronting race in a really, really quite serious way and confronting misogyny in a really quite serious way, that's a good thing. And it's not going to be, it's going to be painful. And a lot of people are going to struggle as they do it. It's good. It's not. It's not happening in China or North Korea. <laughs> My dad uh, graduated from high school in 1959, and you know he's going to listen to this. But and so apologies to you, Dad. But uh, the Halcyon days often didn't didn't really exist. <laughs> <laughs> no, was it? What is that thing? Those people always imagine it was sort of when they were young with the Halcyon days, or just before they were young. Things started to go wrong just about when they arrived on the scene. It's some psychological thing, like. Oh yeah, things were just about. I can just remember when things were sort of not so good, and just before yeah. that they were good. Which, yeah, not true. My last question for you is: Everyone knows, tongue in cheek, that British people sound wiser than Americans. It's just a fact. But in closing, <laughs> mm. what bit of wisdom can you share with my probably mostly American audience? Wisdom. Well, not. <laughs> I now have reached into the depths of my most English accent. <laughs> a bit of a query for you, sir. Uh, a pithy question, <laughs> to which to which I will endeavour to provide some for. Anyway, yes, I, it's true. It, it's one of those things. The British people are seen as cleverer because of the accent, and also seen as more evil. Crying out loud! The number of films you see where the villain is some diabolical old pervert who's got a cat or something and speaks with a cut glass English accent. That's, uh, that is probably actually true of the British public school system did produce a lot of characters like that. But, <laughs> you know, uh, so yeah, uh, evil, evil and cold and yet somehow clever. <laughs> yes. Well, so, well why, wisdom. Well, I think wisdom's a difficult thing to say, you know, I, I don't, I think, I, I think I'd be overreaching to go for wisdom. I'll go for something not unwise. So, the best I can come up with is a simple thought like this, that today, and it comes to, there's a small story that leads up to this. If I, yesterday I left the house and I have a dog and I was walking the dog next to the house, there is a church and it was a frosty, frosty evening, just getting dark. And there were lights across the churchyard and old gravestones leaning from one side to another, ivy climbing the gravestones and the Lights of the church reflecting on the frost, and the dog was having a lovely time as she, rather, is sniffing around and joyously glad to be out of the house and finding all sorts of curious evening smells. 
and we crossed out of the churchyard towards an old house across the road and there sitting on the wall was a cat and this cat uh, fixed us with a kind of implacable stare that only cats can fix you with uh, the yellowish eyes determinedly boring into both of us myself and the dog we both paused I stood there the wondering what how the dog would react to the dog didn't react and the cat's observation was clear it was clear it was clearly what this what this gaze meant and it meant something like what is the point of a thing like you this cat said to both of us what is the point of a thing like you and then I, I moved on the dog was utterly oblivious no no reaction at all I walked on I was feeling slightly downcast by this by this cat and I thought well well you know in a sense, the, the philosopher Schopenhauer, who thought that it was better never to have lived than to have actually lived, but he did like his dog. And I thought, well, as we walk away from this cat, this cat's question, what's the point of a thing like you? You shouldn't be troubled like me, but you should utterly ignore it like the dog and live completely in the moment. And that will uh, that'll do as a piece of wisdom. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Might drop. <laughs> <laughs> The last thing I want to say is, uh, you know, letting people behind the wizard's curtain here. Uh, John and I did talk briefly before we started recording, but like oh, we yes. just met today. And I have invited him back in May or June to talk about utopian mm. societies. Uh, John, I hope you'll do that. I'd be very glad to. We'll, we'll uh, work on, you and I have experienced the delays I'll try to work on figuring out how to make that not happen. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. It, it, uh, you sort of, in the end, you tune yourself up to it, don't you? Pause slightly longer. Yeah. But that, that's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Cheers, John. Thank you so much for being on here. Uh, Brightsiders, please listen to John's podcast, The Spinoza Triad. Uh, available on all your podcasting platforms. <laughs> Again, John Gibbs, thanks so much for joining us and thank you for the wisdom. And thank you for the opportunity. I've enjoyed it tremendously. That is Bright Side of the Hump for this week. Thank you again to our esteemed guest, John Gibbs. We look forward to having him back in June to wrap up our first season. And thank you to all of you who listened. I truly appreciate you. Please give us a good rating, subscribe, share, or otherwise get the word out on social media, social clubs, socialist party meetings, wherevs. If you have suggestions for topics or guests, please email me at brightsidemets at gmail.com. I'm always interested in talking to people who have stories to tell, talents to share, and want to have a little bit of fun. As always, stay positive. And keep looking for the bright side of things. If you dig it, do it. And if you really dig it, do it twice. <laughs> Yo! Bring that fire, trench baby! Hey, fuck all the talking you want me, come give me my niggas, don't care if
if your little niggas toting He wanna argue and text when I catch on my side And I swear he be different in person I'm tryna stay out that way with just me and the gang I be busy, I'm running up tokens Fuck all the distance, just send me the Addy And my nigga slide to something like lotion Fat, 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 five, five, sixes He got the leaning like he off the potion He on the floor steady begging for life He was coughing up blue while we laughing and joking I'm really sliding in something that's stolen I had a talk with my brother, I'm chosen I'ma get rich and I swear I'ma show him He's sick, keep rapping, so I'ma keep going Exploring this city and getting it popping We scattering all like a human of roaches Fuck all the hoes, bro, I'm trying to stay focused It ain't no love, I ain't showing emotion Broke all the body and he just been itching When we in the street, we just caught in the rolling Something like windows, we sliding, they open Janitor the boys with a wet and soaked them Fucking with hoes and me thinking with dicks But I guess you ain't heard about medicine, she wrote it Chilling with demons, I steal for free If a bag in the air, do you know they get down it? Never stay lacking, forever stay posted And I remember them nights, you know who they're not white But I swear we ain't never had motion Caught him at night, he was at a green light But he knew it, he grabbed me the doctor, I saw him Get in that room and start talking and folding I was in young, getting thug, getting low with that money my paper was thick in the folders I'm on my way to the top But I keep getting stopped Cause the devil could grab my shoulder I be up thinking that night So confused about life It had changed ever since I got older Fuck that You got your pipe Hop out that hoop And start up and it blowing And he got the running From losing his life 30s and 40s I'm tired of the talking Said over and bodies It's something I like Coming to shoot I ain't coming to fight You just be talking And you never bothered If you really bothered I'm coming at night Shout out your buddy He next to the angels And he really bigger Than all of the flights I got a switch Yeah I'm towing the dike Riding the shockers And getting some money I come from a struggle And riding Bikes. Me and my brother, we forever thuggy, you know we the toughest, you rollin' the dice